the truth is true. And the fact that we're dealing with a child does not alter the truth. And maybe one of the big sources of mistakes in working with children is to think that they are somehow different than birds or trees or adults or puppy dogs or anything else. They are somehow different than the the saints of heaven, the ideas of God. The truth applies equally to everything and to all things. And that's why the way is so simple. And the way can be very, very simple with a child. And another fact that should be known is that within this world, children are a little piece of heaven, at least for a short time, that is broken off and plopped into our lap. Whether we have a child or not does not cancel this out. If we pass a playground or if we see a small child in a restaurant or down at the plaza watching the the, uh, cross-country bikers doing wheelies or whatever, whatever we we see a child, it's a good thing to know that for a moment, the child has not yet gotten caught up in an ego. A little ego is there for sure. But there is at least one year, two years, three, maybe four or five, with some children longer, with some children less, in which we can see this single purpose shining from their eyes. The purpose of fun, of enjoyment, that everything is for liking. That everything is for playing with. We had uh, a woman over at our house for dinner uh, a few days ago, and she had a hole in her cheek. And John was just fascinated with the hole, and he went up and wanted to know if he could put his finger in the hole, and how did the hole get there, and how did the hole work, and everything. <laughs> and that's what—that's the way children—they see no ugliness, at least for a time. Of course, we educate them, and this is not, this cannot be avoided, and it would be a mistake to try to somehow defend your child against this education, because on one level, of course, the child chose to come back into the world and to be educated once again back into the world and to once again assume an ego. And so on that level, the child, of course, has made the same mistake that we made. So we're all in the we're all in the boat together. But it's it's so recently from the arms of God that we can see a a little of the angel dust still clinging to its shoulders and a little of the the light of heaven shining from its eyes. Even if it can't see from those eyes. And we can feel the gentle warmth of its hand even if it has no hand. And all children are gifts. Now, obviously, the world does not understand this. And there's a tremendous amount of fear about having a baby, adding a baby to our life. A child is no different than anything else. It comes from the heart of God. Nor is a parent And so possibly the second mistake we make is to think that the child is different and that now we are different because we are a parent. And if we are a parent and that is a child, the separation already exists. The roles are already defined. (coughs) The battlefield has been laid and the war has begun. We always think we are something. We are straight or we are gay or we are a homebody, or we are sociable, or we are black, or we are white, or we are brown, or we are red, or we are going through a midlife crisis, or we have no midlife crisis. (laughs) We have an endless array of definitions, things that we fall into over and over again. Even in one day, we will think of ourselves as 
a number of different things. All of you have probably had the uh, experience of suddenly putting on a uniform of some sort. Maybe you maybe you entered the service. Maybe you became a, a, a construction worker for a while, and you you, you dressed in the construction worker's uh, costume, and uh, and so forth. Uh, maybe you became very close friends with a, with a policeman, and you walked near enough to your friend, the policeman, to know what it would feel like uh, to carry that big piece on your hip and and the blue and everything. We've all had that experience of suddenly switching hats. Now we're the owner of a Mercedes. And we look at the whole world. Now we're getting bald. And we look at the world. as We look at everyone's hairline. This is the most important thing. You know. Now we're getting cellulite. So with every little change that takes place, the whole world becomes an entirely different place, and we look at it from that standpoint. Now I'm a single. Now we look at everything. Uh, I, there was a, uh, a friend of mine who met one of the uh, leaders of the women's movement and uh, went to her house, and all she could talk about was how sexist E.T. was. <clears throat> we, all, we all, of course, do this. I met someone in Colorado who was, was telling me that uh, On Golden Pond uh, was very unkind to old people and it was much too much profanity. So the definition we have of ourselves determines what we're going to receive. It's a, it's a very tiny little funnel and only a limited amount of anything can come through it because we are this such and such. Therefore, we must look at all of our friends and every word spoken and everything through this funnel. And a parent is such a funnel. I am a parent. And the time must come, although this is very, very scary, and maybe when uh, we talk about this in a couple of weeks, uh, we will call it the hour of terror, or we'll call it... Uh, <laughs> Booga booga. <laughs> because the relinquishment of our identity is a very scary thing, and it seems crazy. Why would anybody want to not be what they have always been? Why would they want to lay aside all definitions of themselves? Why wouldn't they want to clutch their opinions and protect them in every conversation, argue for them endlessly? Why wouldn't they want to keep the same tired old reactions to every event and every soup and every piece of lettuce? And every, why? Why not do that? In the beginning, it's, a, it's an act of faith that we drop these things. Very gradually, we begin saying, I have no identity but God. We do not understand those words. It sounds like we're going to become mushroom soup. And we're not even sure we're going to be a little piece of mushroom. It's just super just... But I can tell you there is nothing more free. And we've talked here about levels of progress. And the services here have sort of gone from step to step. We began by just talking about looking and watching. Then we went to a small amount of prayer. And then last Sunday we talked about a more sustained period of prayer. Eventually the time comes in which you will no longer want your ego identity. You don't want to be this thing that you've always been. And you will realize that this thing, this bundle of reactions, is the only source of pain in your life. I have come from nowhere, you will want to say. And I have nowhere to go. I am what I am right now. And so this is the position of attainment for any parent. To be one with the child so that the heart 
of the parent beats as one with the heart of the child. But in order to do that, we must look at what is going on, how the ego operates in this manner, and how can we go up this gentle staircase to a position such as that, where we know our child will never leave us, not even in adolescence, no matter what appears to be happening, that this is a coming together that shall not be broken. So I'd like to talk about first the young child and then I'd like to talk about the adolescent. But let me say a few more words just about childhood in general. Our purpose as a parent or our purpose as a teacher of children or our purpose as a stranger that walks by a child in a store or our purpose with our nieces and nephews. Our single purpose in regard to a child is to make life easier for the child. If this is remembered, then all correction and all firmness and even the occasional sternness that is needed will be truly helpful and will free the child from fear. So this is the motto of the person who is relating to the child. How can I make life easier? Would it make life easier on my child in this instance if I said no? And it can be seen when a no hinders and makes scared and terrifies and limits and when a no frees and loosens up. And yes becomes the road that our child walks on. So we lay before our child Approach, not avoidance. Love, not fear. We have a simple rule, a rule of happiness that is spoken in various ways, but always very simply. And this allows the, ch the child to advance. And we do nothing out of guilt. We're there to make life easier, but we do not go past our sense of enjoyment. And when you find yourself flipping lighted cigarette butts at your child, you know you have gone past your sense of enjoyment. <laughs> this must be watched and not feared that we see, oh, uh, my child wants to play now. And I want to play now. And I will play with abandon. But the minute my sense of enjoyment ends, I will not continue playing out of a sense of guilt and duty. Because the only thing that we teach is what we feel. And this is the thing that is so widely misunderstood. People think they teach what they tell the child. Or they teach what they make the child do. And so here the child is playing with its uh, loop doop doll. And uh, won't share the Luke Duke doll with the, uh, the little neighbor's child who's over there. And uh, so we grab the Luke Duke uh, doll away and dismember it and say, <laughs> and this is supposed to uh, teach them sharing. You see. <laughs> it's what we feel in our heart that's the true lesson. It's what we're really valuing. It's a true lesson. And so when we go in and we hurt a child because it's not sharing, and let's just look at this sharing thing. You know, the child gets a new little car, a little play car they can ride around in. And another child comes over, and so they're supposed to share this new car. This is all adults tell them to do this. But when you get a new car... <laughs> Your friend comes over and says, I think I'd like to just take that out for the weekend. <laughs> and you say, oh, that's just fine. I believe in sharing. <laughs> this is, of course, crazy because the child has, has been taught from the very first moment that it could absorb anything that we have a very strong value on possession. 
that this is that it that possessions are very important to us and that there are certain possessions that are more important than the child the child's found this out when it got too close to them and so suddenly <laughs> and so suddenly uh, we expect that the child to learn sharing by being forced to hand a toy over to another child but what the child is learning is what we are feeling at the moment which is I value attack. Attack is a useful tool to get what I want because that is what I am doing even though I'm doing it in the name of love and sharing and peaceful cooperation. So let's talk a moment about the young child. The very young child has not identified with its ego. This is obvious. It's been said over and over again. It's quite clear. This is a fact. But the implications of it may not have been looked at very closely. The young child identifies with you. The young child identifies with you even if you are an adult that's just around it for an hour or so. It is looking more to you as to what it is than it is looking to its own ego. This, of course, gradually diminishes as the, as the child gets older. And at adolescence, there's a, there's a reversal of this. And the child begins to identify with its own ego. But it is because this is a fact that the child is using our inner state as their being that it makes... Controlling a child, if you want to use that term, or disciplining a child, or directing a child, so simple. Because the child will reflect our internal state. And if we are at peace, our child will be at peace. And if we are anxious, our child will begin act acting out. Now, the reason this isn't obvious is because people think that the child is picking up on how they are behaving. And they think if they are behaving in a peaceful manner that their child should be peaceful. Or that they're behaving in what they think is a nice way that their child should be nice. And they don't understand why suddenly the child is, is having a very bad afternoon. But whenever this is going on, if you will simply look in your heart, you will see that you are at least anxious. You are at least upset. And you are probably in conflict with some other adult around you at the moment there's probably some unforgiveness that's taking place. So it is a good thing to try hugs and kisses and love before you try firmness and discipline. Unless, of course, this is something that the child has done before and there's a rule about it and you have to step in and be firm. But if the child is simply having a bad time, Many people think that they have to step in with sternness immediately. That they have to react instantly. And of course we don't have to react instantly. We can take a second to remember how much we love the child. Even if it's someone else's child. It's a child. And remembering that. We can then try to meet what is its basic need. What are the basic needs of a young child? Safety or reliability, I can count on it, that sense of I can count on it, and peace. And another one that's so obvious that you wonder how we all miss it. Possibly the deepest need of all that a young child has, the need to play. This is a deep, deep need, as deep as our need for hunger. As deep as our need for sleep. Far deeper still is the child's need to play. And to make a game of everything. And it is interesting how a child that is suddenly acting out. And has become a bad child for a while. If you will just initiate a little play with it. It feels love. And it becomes peaceful. And the whole thing stops. Last Sunday I told you about 
having had uh, John in a school that had good facilities and had a very good ratio of uh, children to teachers and that when Gail and I visited the school, this particular school, there was a lot of uh, what seemed to me a lot of accidents and a lot of crying and a lot of little uh, discipline wars going on and it had been so long since I had had a child that that young in school that I thought, well, this is just the way it is. And then I mentioned to you that we transferred him to another school that had poorer facilities and had more kids. And the whole situation would have seemed to have allowed for far more little accidents and cryings and temper tantrums and stuff like that. But we didn't see any. And we couldn't believe it. We thought that something had happened. There was some sort of chemical had gotten in the water that day or something. <laughs> and we came back and looked at the school again. Sure enough, we couldn't, not a single child was crying. Of course, a child does cry there, I'm sure, every once in a while. There weren't any discipline wars. I saw a teacher do something. This was not a technique. This was a spontaneous something. Um, we had to take one of the little boys that was there home to his mommy. We'd agreed to do this. And he didn't have his lunch pail with him. And so the question was, uh, we'll call him uh, Ralph. Ralph, um, where's your lunch pail? Oh, I don't know. And he just lay down on the floor. And he wasn't, obviously, was not going to tell us. He wasn't going to So the woman who runs this school... Uh, saw the situation, came over, asked him where his lunch pail was. He was lying on the floor. He went, <laughs> now, most of us would have said, this is a time for sternness. You know, this is a time for firmness. Just instantly, she just got right down on the floor and became a child. Now, this, of course, wouldn't work for someone else. This was just natural for her. She just got down there and she was lying down next to him, started talking to him and so forth. And I forget what they chatted about, but eventually she worked in the lunch pail. And, <laughs> <laughs> and just a second, uh, this little boy was up and taking her out and showing her where the lunch pail was. So simple. Now, someone might look at that and say, oh, gosh, this is, he's going to be doing that when he's 40. You can't. <laughs> Got to put an end to that right away, see? So one habit that allows us to bring in these things that meet the deep need of the child, which is our peace, our peace with our spouse, our peace with the other siblings, our peace with the other teachers, our peace with the other workers in the institute where we are caring for the child, or our peace with the other counselors where we are counseling children. One way that that peace can come into the situation and one way that love can grow from the peace and one way that the deep need of play can be met is by simply developing a new habit in dealing with the child. And Danny Kay and Art Linkletter and all the people who seem to do so well with children have said this thing. They have said that you do nothing when a child approaches you. Rather than rushing in and asking it all sorts cute questions and jiggling its belly button and all this stuff, which never seems to work, and the child sort of backs up and hard, and we think, well, that's a, you know, what kind of child is that? <laughs> they recommend that you just sort of you know, this, you're just kind of quiet and look at them and you don't do anything. Now, this is, of course, a difficult concept to, to express. Of course, they're doing something. But the fact that they call it stillness is very interesting to me, although I don't know if they've either used, either of them have used that word. But it is, of course, a form of waiting or openness or stillness. So we let this new relationship seep into our heart. 
because otherwise we're trying to relate as an adult to a child, and this requires this is builds enormous stress. How can I, as an adult, relate to this child? Because we all want to relate to them. They're so much fun. We want them. We want to, them to like us, and we, of course, want to be people that children flock to, and birds come around and sit on our shoulders and <laughs> all that. So we have this image. You know, we would like to be uh, like. Uh, Maria the Potter and you know all the little animals come out in the morning and so forth. But we don't know how to do this. And so there's this enormous stress because we're not pulling this thing off. And the reason we're not pulling it off is that we're still an adult. And we don't know how to be a child. But God does. Our inner self does. Our deep knowing does. Our internal teacher does. It's already there. It's a fact of our being. We've never stopped being a child. And so in stillness, we let our childhood come forward a little bit. And this is a learning. It's a learning process. Our first reaction is stillness and quietness and openness to this child. This thing so new from heaven. Still brushed with light and twinkling with gold, bubbling with happiness so often. And we just sort of take a deep breath and we just wait for the relationship to surface, the relationship that already exists between us and this child. This child is our brother and our sister. This child is not an age difference. One of the hazards about talking about children in this way is that people think that they now know how they're supposed to act toward their children. They now know how they're supposed to behave toward their children or toward other children. And so in the whole spiritual movement, and this is surfacing once again, there's sort of these waves in history of which the child is recognized and then the child is debunked, then the child is recognized and the child is debunked. We're in a, a period now in which the child is once again being recognized. And what often happens is that people think, I am not supposed to be firm with the child because the child is, is uh, brushed with this peace and this, this uh, magic. But the child is a flickering candle here on earth. And we must keep that candle lit. And the child, because it, just like us, has decided to come into this world and partake of it, to once again to assume an ego and develop it, to once again pursue this or that idol, because it hadn't yet seen that this particular idol or series of idols was of no use, it is, of course, remembering that purpose as it goes along, and it does try out various ego approaches, and we can see children doing that. It does that not only because that was its decision to begin with, but also because that's what the world is presenting to it all around it. And so you'll see little children doing push games. Two, three, four, five. You, they'll meet another kid, and they go up and they push them like that. Another kid pushes them back. Now, usually the adults jump in and this is they're just reflecting the world everything in this world is doing this to everything else and the child has just picked that up it realizes that this is one of the rules of the game you know you don't go like this you go like that that's because that's the way we all operate we're doing that with our eyes we're doing that with our thoughts yuck why does he wear his hair like that you say we're just pushing or uh she stands much too close when she talks. Doesn't she know that she doesn't brush her teeth? <laughs> See. Whatever the thing is, there's this little judgment, this chattering monkey we've talked about in which we are raking over the person's clothes, uh, the size of their cheekbones, and uh, the, how much mascara, and uh, why the boots, are they shorter than they appear, you know, what, all this thing. And, what accent is that? Uh, that's, you know, that's not a spiritual part of the country, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and 
So children, of course, pick all this up. It's everywhere. It's on, on the news. War after war, conflict after conflict, controversy after controversy, and all the magazines. Everywhere, everywhere, there's nothing but war. Nice, nice bloodletting. Very nice bloodletting. And that's why we think that it escaped the child's attention, because we've coated it with uh, powdered sugar and everything. No, excuse me, with brewer's yeast. <laughs> and uh, we think that the, that the child has escaped this. The child hasn't escaped it. The basic state of this world is slaughterhouse. It's just that we've made it look pretty nice, and, and uh, we've called it wonderful words and given them great value, such as, I believe in competition, which means that, of course, you crush your friend who's just finally gotten you to uh, play a little touch football, you see, and you say, oh, I forgot, I thought we were playing tackle, and uh, your friend goes limping off, but you've proved your point. You're a better football player than your friend is. We do this in everything, in every card game, in every conversation. Oh, you have that piece of knowledge, we think? Well, let me tell you what I know about the subject. So this is the pushing that goes on. We don't need to do anything about this unless, of course, the kids have got escalated to the point where they're <laughs> blooding each other's nose or something. Then, of course, you step in. But, of course, they're acting this thing out. And we recognize that. But we don't have to push them further in that direction. And oftentimes, when we step in, when the child is doing a little acting out, we are, in fact, pushing them further in that direction. Because what is different than snatching a child up and telling it not to do that? Which means you're embarrassing me. Why, why do that if it's just a little pushing or whatever thing's going on? Why do that if the lesson we are teaching is, I am pushing you? Because is that not what I'm doing? So where does firmness come in? Firmness comes in in which, in, in a place in which we can see the child is actually centered on an unhappy path for a moment. It's not a, just a tentative trying out of this and that, which is perfectly all right. But now you can see suddenly the child is centered on temper tantrums, on whining, or on never cooperating. And the child is actually centered on this as an approach to life. Something has happened and it thinks, ah, this will get me far. I will whine all the time. Or I will kick and scream whenever I don't get my way. This is an unhappy path. And seeing it's an unhappy path, that is the place for firmness. Gentle firmness, preceded by stillness, in which we step in, we pick the child up off of the unhappy path, and we place it on the happy path. And we simply tell it in one form or another, kicking and screaming will not work. That's all. It just doesn't work. Whining just doesn't work. So there's nothing spiritual about letting a child proceed down an unhappy path if we can very gently come in and say, no, walk this way, without teaching the very lesson in the process. Another thing that's so obvious about small children is that we ask them to do things in the name of toughening them, in the name of preparing them for the world that they are not ready to do. And a very good example of this is um, flushing a toilet. Often parents try to get their kids to flush the toilet. I'm still talking about young kids. Uh, adolescents, we'll, we'll talk about in a moment. <laughs> uh, if you look carefully at the kid, and you've asked the kid to do this particular thing, whatever it is, I'm just going to use flushing the toilet as an example. It is quite possible if the kid is not doing it, and there is no whining or temper tantrum or anything involved, it's just not doing it, it's quite possible that the kid cannot do it. Not that it can't reach up and pull the lever, but it can be 
that the swirling water and everything being sucked down is very frightening to the kid. But the kid has already learned that it's not supposed to be frightened. It's to deny its fear. And so this is a this is a very scary thing for it to do. It may be a very scary thing for it to do a particular thing in a bathtub. We may not realize that the kid does not understand water levels and that one water level is safe and another one isn't because it has probably slipped once or twice and gotten some water in its mouth. And now we're asking to do it, it to do this particular thing and we don't understand why it doesn't do it. Very often it can't. And to try to force it into its fear simply to get it to behave in this way often does nothing but cause a further separation between us and the child. And so with our child, we want to have as few demands as possible. Only ones that truly make the child happy. We want our no to be like a padded dashboard. We don't want it to we don't want to go through the dashboard, and if we try to go through the dashboard, it's padded. Or like a padded stair that leads out of a bar. And it's padded because uh, we may we may have had one too many Bloody Marys, and now we're going to try to walk through the stairs. And the people who built the bar know this, and it's all padded. And so when you try to walk through, so that's what our no is. Our no is something that will not move. We cannot go through it. But at the same time, it will not hurt us to come up against it. And the primary path, once again, is the path of yes. The path of approach. The path of this is more fun. The path of love rather than the path of fear. And in this way, we keep this little flickering candle lit. And that is all we're doing. We are the guardians of a little candle that has come to earth. And if it blows out, we light it again. Because it will lead us. It will show us the way to go. It will show us that it's possible to have a single purpose that makes our heart sing. And so our no and our yes simply protects this gentle flame. And we realize that we truly do have a teacher in our midst and in our home. Let's talk about the adolescent now. I realize, of course, that this seems to be a single-issue talk. And oftentimes people feel left out when something's being discussed and they, they don't think that there's any of that going on in their life. But the fact is that the truth is true and that the truth applies to every situation. So your spouse is a lighted candle. Your friend is a lighted candle. Everything that we've talked about, except the firmness, applies to our relationship with adults. We do not step in and be firm with another adult because they are not identifying with our ego. But our ego is the identity of this child. And so we do, in fact, say no and yes for it, in peace and out of peace, and for the purpose of peace. But we do not do that with another adult because that will simply make the other adult clutch to their mistaken identity all the more strongly. So what are the adolescent? I think I've pointed out to you that uh, when Jesus reached 13, they stopped writing about him. As soon as he became an adolescent, no one was going to record a single thing he did. And there have been various suggestions such as, uh, well, why don't we put him to sleep at 13 and wake him up at 21? This is a very, very sad moment in the life of any parent when the child becomes an adolescent. There are a few, very, very few children that do not go through this in this particular way. But it is not to be wished for. This is not an attainable 
or practical goal to want your child to not go through this business of being an adolescent. The adolescent has experienced their first deep disappointment with the world. And now, instead of turning to love and peace, which they eventually will, they're saying, oh no, it can't be that way, and they dive into the world all the more deeply. The adolescent has now finally learned the value of the world, that our separation, our difference, our differences, our distinctions with other people are the greatest prizes. This is the lesson of the world. How am I different from other people? And so now it begins to learn how to be different. And it learns this very much like we learn how to ride a bicycle. It tries being different in this way and being different in that way. And this is an extremely sad and unhappy time because here is this child that used to nurse at your breast, that used to run to you when it was cut, that used to greet you at the door and say, Daddy, Daddy, come over here. Look what I did. And it showed you the blocks that it had stacked. This was a little child who hung on your every word, who helped you with your chores, who hugged you at night, asked you to read its stories, gave you kisses, and thought your kiss could heal anything. And now it does not love you. And it has turned from you. And this is a very sad thing. And this is why people go running after their teenagers. Teenagers following them around the house, yelling at them. Why didn't you take out the garbage? Why don't you clean up your room? It looks like a pigsty. Running out the door after them. Giving them long lectures at because of the hours they come in at night. The adult has mistaken the control that appeared to be there for the love. And is trying to go back to the control, thinking that's what the love was. Of course, the love had nothing to do with the control. And if we will just realize that 90% of what the teenager is doing, they're not going to be doing three years from now or ten years from now. So let's take uh, taking out the garbage as an example, which I understand is the number one complaint of all parents. Once again, the needs of the adolescent are very similar to the needs of the child with one difference. The need for play is not so great now, and the need for consistency is greater. And so the wise parent acts very much like a bird or other animals. It sees that the young bird wants to leave the nest, and it may even push it out of the nest a little, helping it. But it provides a safe nest into which the bird can fly back after its tentative flight. A warm welcome is there. It does not fight this process. It helps the child out in any way that it can, even though its efforts are go unacknowledged and no gratitude is given. But this is truly building for the future, because what we are saying to the adolescent is, I am your friend now. I am no longer your parent, but I am your friend. I am the best friend that you have. No matter what happens to you, you can come back to this place. And so do not say to your uh, teenager, if you don't stop smoking pot, you can never step foot in this house again. This accomplishes nothing. They're not going to be smoking pot within a few years. They're going to go to much bigger and better things. So do not draw the line on a battlefield upon which you are going to lose. 
And any time that we tell a, an adolescent to not do something that they have control over, the chances are they're going to go right ahead and do it because that's what they're trying to learn is opposition and conflict and difference and separation. This has now become their central goal to be different. And so the very fact that we tell them that they must do this is the almost sufficient reason for them to do it because that's what they're trying to learn. This is the bicycle they're trying to, to, uh, to ride, to be the Mar Marlboro Man or whatever. So what, where is our firmness and where is our consistency and where is our safety? It is with the things that we control completely. And so, for example, with the garbage, this is just a suggestion. It doesn't matter how this is exercised, but this is just illustrates how you can be firm with the things that you can be firm with if they are truly important. And you say, this is a family. And we, and we cooperate. And the family functions because we all help each other. And we each have these little chores that we do. And yours is to take out the garbage. And so possibly you say to the teenager, would you take out the garbage? And you say this three times. And then you drop it don't say anything about it. And then the teenager comes to you that weekend and says, Mom, can I borrow the car? I want to go see Pink Floyd. <laughs> and you say, this family functions on cooperation. We have asked that you give a gift to the family to help the family out. And now you're asking that the family do a favor for you. And so there will be no car because there was no garbage. Just the way it works <clears throat> is a rule that works. I give to you and you give to me. And there is this exchange. I love you and then you love me. I don't demand that you love me. But here the rule does apply. In this family we do work together. And so I'm very sorry. You cannot have the car. But if you will do a favor for the family, then the family will lovingly do a favor for you. And the teenager will have a screaming fit about this. <laughs> but this is where your firmness comes in. Don't worry about losing the affection of the, of the teenager if you can see that this is a very simple, understandable, and fair principle. And so you are being fair, and you want to do it out of fairness, and you do not want to do it out of anger, and you do not want to say any of this out of anger, and you do not want to evoke guilt when you bring any of this up, and you do not want to say, well, you're a bad person for not taking out the garbage. It has nothing to do with that. With that. It has to do with a simple rule, that our family helps each other. And if you'd like to participate in the family, then the family can help you, and it, it, that's the way it works. Now you've taken a stand on something that you can control. I know that we've covered a, a lot today. But let me see if I can summarize the main things that we've spoken about. Just as we are there to make life easier on our teenager, on our three-year-old, on our 12-year-old who's just putting on makeup for the first time, just as we are there to make life easier, and our yes and our no serves only that purpose, truly the child has come into our life in whatever way a child has come into your life. And do not say there are no children in your life. The noise of children are coming through this door right now. The child has come into your life to make life easier on you. The child comes bearing love, and we must open our hearts to love. And this is probably the most difficult of all things for us to do, to allow ourselves to be loved, especially by something that our ego tells us is different, and it tells us that a child is different than us. But a child is a little pot of love. 
It's a little honeycomb. And it can nourish us. And it can light the way. And so the greatest rule of all concerning children is, even if they're adolescents, is to open our hearts to the gift that this creature from God comes bearing. To relax, to forget all of our shoulds about how children should behave, which change every three or four years, a whole new set of rules and ideals and techniques has come about. All you have to do is sell, say, say, well, that, say to someone, well, that idea sounds like something from the 50s. Everyone will accept that. If it's a few years old, we know it's wrong. <laughs> and so everything that we believe as far as this technique or that technique or should you do this or should you do that, everything that has to do with behavior and how we should behave, the prescribed ways that we should behave towards our children, is wrong. And we will not even believe it a few years from now. But the gift will still be there. This is still a creature from God. This is still our brother and our sister. And we do walk hand in hand with this little thing or this tall, gawky thing with pimples. <laughs> so let's close by, if you join me in a final prayer. I seek only the peace of God. The peace of God is all I seek. Seek only the love of God. The love of God is all I wish to give. I am the peace of God. I am the love of God. The love and the peace of God is all I long for all I have. And for this fact, which will forever remain unchanged, I am deeply